The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. This is the show that brings you a psychological perspective on common and current life issues. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Welcome. Thanks for joining me again. Uh, It's Suzanne Phillips with two very interesting guests. The issue and need for racial diversity among police officers reflects an attempt to ease growing tensions that have emerged in the wake of racialized police violence and the Black Lives Matter movement. Underlying the question of whether officer racial diversity improves community police relations is the question, how do police officers feel? How do they balance blue culture and Black Lives Matter? We are so fortunate to have as our guest experts today, sociologist Dr. Preto Hodge, who will be sharing her important research behind the badge and the veil, Black police offices in the era of Black Lives Matter. And she's joined by Dr. Kalfani Touré, a Black man, former police officer, and senior fellow in the Urban Ethnology Project at Yale University. More information on them, Dr. Kayla Preto-Hodge is an assistant professor of criminal justice at Rutgers University. She's also a fellow at the Institute for Global and Racial Justice at Rutgers. Her research focuses on the intersection of race, policing, and organizations. She takes an organizational approach in looking at issues within policing and considers how race and organizational factors contribute to disparities and abuses in current policing practices and policies. Dr. Kalfani Touré is a faculty member at Maryland's Mount St. Mary's University. He also maintains an appointment as a senior fellow in the Urban Ethnology Project at Yale University's. Amid anti-racial protests and calls to end police violence in America, Dr. Torre has emerged as one of the nation's leading experts on policing. Regarding urban law enforcement, he has provided expertise to the New York Times, USA Today, MSNBC, NPR, Fox News, CNN. His activism and police reform is featured in a soon-to-be-released Netflix documentary. Dr. Caleb Prado-Hodge and Dr. Kalfani Touré, it is my great privilege to welcome you to Psych Up Live. Thank you. Glad to be here. Okay. So let's start with the purpose of your story, Dr. Hodge. The title is Behind the Badge and the Veil, Black Police Officers in the Era of Black Lives Matter. Tell us a little bit about what you mean when you say behind the badge and the veil. So sure. Um, This study was essentially kind of developed. It's a part of my dissertation research, but it was developed in part um, when I thought about the Black Lives Matter movement, as well as Black police officers positionality within this movement, because they are both Black and police officers. 
So the badge, of course, is just what it what it sounds like. It's the badge that they wear. Um, and the veil um, describes like a sort of naivety um, or the burden of seeing and interpreting the world through a very racialized uh, lens, right? So when we think about the racial caste system and the act of lifting the veil is like a symbolic moment for Black Americans when they come to understand the depths of racial inequality and white supremacy and thus develop strategies to navigate this newfound, um, I guess, like understanding. And so the whole inspiration for this article, again, is to understand how Black police officers kind of navigate these dual identities of being Black and also being Blue, right? Um, blue, mm-hmm. these cultural um, or organizational or occupational identities. Um, I oftentimes use the terms organizational and occupational very interchangeably. So um, th- those are, the, I-, I conceive of those things as one and the same thing. So yeah, mm-hmm. that's basically how, you know, I've really developed um, this particular title when thinking about Black police officers. So uh, in your wonderful article, as the preface to talking about your study, you mentioned your own prior research and some of the others. And, and the findings are things like um, black and underrepresented groups were more likely than white male officers, black officers to perceive discrimination as a pertinent issue. Um, another interesting thing is regardless of race, however, black offices and white offices describe really have an identity with the blue brotherhood and i think that we'll be talking about how they balance that and what that means for them i think uh, one of the other things you talk you find is blacks and latino police both feel that people in marginalized communities deserve quality police services um and interesting also when you looked closely at police violence, it was recognized, but 43% of Black officers felt that um, officers involved in homicides, it was just an isolated event. So I wanted our audience to know that we're going into your research with a very, very interesting dilemma for Black officers. And before you give us our results, I just want to ask Dr. Ture, who himself was an officer, what do we really mean by the Blue Brotherhood, Dr. Ture, so our our audience understands this? Sure, that's an important question. Uh, The Blue Brotherhood implies a sort of fraternity, uh, and fraternity and not sorority because it is a very masculine um, sort of culture to which we expect women when they join the force to assimilate into. Mm. But that's a whole nother discussion. Uh, What this sort of blue brotherhood implies is a certain uh, code of ethics, not necessarily meaning that the officers themselves are going to operate in the ethical standard, but there's a code that comes with uh, the profession. It is typically a code uh, that supposes unity. It uh, supposes a code of silence meaning that officers are not to rat out other officers for their indiscretions, either intentional or or actions based on negligence. Um, You simply don't report, and that's really one of the principal codes. But the other uh, thing is is that um, if, in fact, there are acts, particularly of racialized police brutality, uh, the code assumes that um, you understand the justification of it, that there's mm-hmm. a tacit understanding 
uh, of, of for the justification of it. The code, in fact, means that you cover your brother's six, a police officer's six, at all costs, right? Uh, because certainly you don't want to be a uh, individual accused of some indiscretion and have officers turn their back on you. Mm-hmm. So it is this sort of uh, peculiar sense of of unity. But one of the things that I really would love to add, and I would, what I think is so great about uh, Dr. Prieto Hodge's work, if I may love on her just a little bit, um, I'm reminded when I read her work how Du Bois stated in his Souls of Black Folk that there was this peculiar sensation, this sort of double consciousness, this sense, as he said, and I'm quoting him, of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others, of measuring one's soul by the tape of a world that looks upon you with amusement, if not pity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so there is this sort of double consciousness, if you will, um, that uh, pervades the life of a black officer in a way that's different. And what I appreciate about Dr. Uh, Prieto Hodge's work is that um, a lot of people quote Du Bois, but she literally goes under the cover, uh, lift the veil and says to the black officer, please tell me your story because your story back is diagnostic of where we might uh, improve policing or if there's any hope at all for it. Perfect. Okay, let's go to that study. I'm excited by it. You're excited by it. Um, Dr. Prado Hodge, tell us how how much time it took, how you collected your data, your rationale. Go right ahead. Yeah, so this was this project was based on my dissertation research. Um, so data collection, I would say, was completed over about a two-year period with um, most of it occurring within a one-year period. And then I had some supplemental interviews um, towards the end of data collection and analysis period. Um, I'm sorry, can you X the, the second? Yes. So what are the types of questions? Now, you met with these offices in their homes, in different places. It was very informal, I take it? Yes, very informal, very intimate. Um, so the... I designed the study in this way um, to promote this intimacy so that they could feel comfortable talking, you know, like so they wouldn't be, you know, somewhere where they might feel like somebody can overhear them and they might, you know, get repercussions um, based on whatever they said. So the interviews were very, very intimate. And so some of the interviews lasted like three hours, right? Okay, yeah. (laughs) Like coding and, and, and transcriptions were... Um, a lot, yes. Have a sense just based on like the the num the 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 sheer time that interviews took place. Um, that officers had a lot on their chest, right? Black officers, they had a lot to say, and nobody ever asked them these questions, right? Nobody asked them what it meant to be a black officer. Nobody even thought to think about them in a way of like their racialized experiences of being police officers, right? Right. I just want to say something, make and correct me if I'm wrong. A number of your participants in this study as black offices has moved up the ranks and were actually officers. Uh, they were they were chiefs or they were high ranked. Is that correct? Yes, there were a number of high ranking officers um, in this study for sure. OK. And so the questions you ask them is what it means to be blue, what it means to be black. Um and the what is the role of a police officer in the community? 
Um, go ahead. Yeah, I, I ask them uh, questions along the community lines, you know, their motivations for joining. Um, oftentimes when we talk about motivations, especially, um, and I think I think not even just about policing, but um, about academics as well, um, and people in general, oftentimes I, I feel like, uh, for example, research, when I think about academics, academics oftentimes, especially academics of color, oftentimes study issues that are related to their personhood, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so what I found in relation to black officers is that oftentimes some of them reported joining the police force because they wanted to help um, their community mm. and the difference in their community. Um, and so it was really like this idea of like, this is the reason that I got into this, but how that actually played out in the long run in the in the co-optation, you know, into blue police culture and the impact that that actually had on community relations, et cetera, et cetera, was remarkable to see. Mm. Them. You know, the former research by Alex, um, uh, Nicholas Alex, he, he, he also was researching and asking questions. And it was just so moving to me. And I, I think some of your folks hinted at this that he would actually visibly and viscerally watch um, racialized violence happen and feel, how can I be on this side when my neighbor is someone who's being victimized on that side? And I wonder, did they talk about that kind of moral dilemma, Kayla? Yes. So I think that um, quite a few officers did talk about that moral dilemma of being black and blue. Um, All of them discussed it at some point, um, even if it was, you know, later on for me asking a particular question. But all of them discussed in some length the dilemma between being black and blue. Um, That's whether or not they got um, stopped by a police officer. So I had one one particular officer that really, really stood out who was very, um, I would say, very police oriented. but he was stopped by the police and he was treated terribly. Um, mm-hmm. and that was a wake up call for him um, that, hey, I'm I'm actually black and you're re- really treating me bad. Like, how are you treating other black people out there? Mm-hmm. But at mm-hmm. the same time, while that was a very interesting analysis, his ideologies um, overall did not shift. Right. So he isolated that moment. So, um, for example, we. Um, uh, you just you just mentioned the research that was done by the Pew Re- uh, the Pew Research Center, um, where they found that about fifty seven percent of Black officers saw racialized police violence as isolated events, um, and I think that hit him. This officer in particular, his name is Shabazz in the study. Um, he is exemplary of that, whereas though he saw these things as isolated incidents, as opposed to very social. Um, and cultural issues that emerge within policing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's one story that bears on um, uh, Dr. Torre's comment about woman. I think her name is Eleanor. She's a black policewoman. She's pulled over by a white policeman who's pulled his gun, and she rolls her window down and says, what are you doing? Do you know who I am? <laughs> I thought, this is a very courageous woman, but of course he apologizes. It, 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 it's... It's maybe startling when they encounter what they know, which is the racialized violence, because they're part of both teams. It's a very different, difficult bind to be in. Yes. Yes. 
we are going to have to take a break um, and we're going to come right back so that our listeners know we are here with Dr. Prado Hodge. She's a sociologist and professor. Her new research study, Behind the Badge and the Veil, Black Police Officers in the Era of Black Lives Matter. She's joined by Dr. Kalfani Torre. He's considered the nation's leading expert on policing. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Planning for college? Tune in to Getting In, a college coach conversation for tips, techniques, and insider perspectives. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton, a former admissions officer at the University of Pennsylvania and featuring her fellow admissions and college finance experts from Bright Horizons College Coach. The show shares what colleges are really looking for and how to highlight your hard-won achievements for the best chance at success. New episodes air every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in every Friday to get your weekend kickoff early. Join the legendary G. Keith Alexander for What's Hot Harlem America. The flagship show of the new Harlem America Digital Network has something for everyone. From the latest in entertainment to empowerment, health and wellness, and more, we'll bring you a variety of fresh viewpoints, voices, and ideas. What's Hot Harlem America with G. Keith Alexander can be heard every Friday at 1 p.m. in New York and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. It's time to get real, discover who you are, and get the tools to navigate your life. It's time to rock your midlife with Dr. Ellen Albertson, the Midlife Whisperer. Your Midlife Roadmap is the blueprint you need to roll with change, transform yourself, and create a fabulous second adulthood. Get answers and solutions for whatever you're up against and transform problems into opportunities. Make your next life chapter your best chapter with Rock Your Midlife every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back. We are here with Dr. Prado Hodge, a sociologist and professor, and Dr. Kalfani Torre, also a fellow at Yale and an expert on policing. And we're taking a close look at Dr. Prado Hodge's research entitled Behind the Badge and the Veil, Black Police Officers in the Era of Black Lives Matter. Um, so we were just talking about the fact that one of the questions that Dr. Prado Hodge asked volunteers who sat with her and privately discussed their life as police officers, one of the things she asked was their motivation for joining. So Dr. Torre will ask you, what was your motivation for joining? Well, this is a, a wonderful question, a question that I often ask my students who are in law enforcement and are of color. 
uh, and just people who I come in contact who are of color in law enforcement. And invariably, they will say something to the effect that they just want to make a, a difference in society. And I'll be honest with you, I used to amuse myself by responding in kind. Yeah, I just wanted to make a positive difference. But let me tell you the truth behind my joining law enforcement outside of me wanting to become a professor of policing. And that is, uh, in this society, you you know, and the study of black police officers is not simply the study of the black experience in law enforcement, but it's really the study of whiteness and the study of race in society. And one of the things I think is important to understand and which I speak truth to power is that I operate with a deficit of credibility, right? To be black in this society is to be less than or to be absent um, something that otherwise would make you whole. Uh, to be white in this society as to have a wholeness conferred upon you without even being expected mm-hmm. or inspected, if, if you will. And so I move through as a provisional citizen, whether I'm in law enforcement or not. And one of the, I think one of the most honorable uh, professions, at least as we all have been taught, uh, the most moral profession uh, or moral agents that is, is policing. And so my joining law enforcement was to, it was compensatory. I was trying to make up Mm. for this racial deficit that I had suffered and that much of us um, know very legibly and very intimately uh, about race and society and those who are particularly raced as black or brown. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to make up this difference in in, in law enforcement. Um, Now, once you get inside of this, you still continue to be provisional and you have to (laughs) Prove yourself to your Mm. fellow officers that you are down with what we call this blue code of silence or this blue fraternity or this blue culture and 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 to not be down with it or to be perceived as being someone too black for the blue profession uh, can be dangerous. I just want to point to you an incident that happened in 1987, the March 18th, 1987, uh, with the community resource against street hoodlums otherwise known as CRASH, as an acronym. This was an LAPD sort of crime suppression unit. And what happened on this particular day, uh, there was an officer, in fact, um, uh, by the name of Kevin Gaines. And Kevin Gaines is an African-American police officer, and he was in this sort of traffic uh, dispute with another undercover cop who was part of this crime suppression unit named Frank Ligger. Uh, And he threw gang signs at Officer Gaines, Officer Gaines being a police officer, thinking that he was going to be ambushed, um, brandished his firearm. And Frank Ligger, this this undercover police officer as part of this crime suppression unit, uh, shot and killed him. Now, what's the difference here? Kevin uh, Gaines was African-American and Frank uh, Ligger was a white police officer. Uh, Now, uh, Kevin suspected that Frank might be an officer, but was unsure because of the gain signs. And if you run afoul of this blue fraternity, in the most extreme sense, there's always the danger that that force, that fraternity can turn on you. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, in this case, Kevin Gaines would lose his life. But he's mm-hmm. not the only one. There are black officers all around the country, such as DeLacy Davis, a colleague of mine in East Orange, New Jersey, um, who tried to stand up for justice and make uh, his police department and police departments around the country operate on a more moralistic um, ground, only to have his colleagues turn against him. So you can run afoul of this 
blue fraternity. But I think quietly, most of us are trying to compensate for the racialized deficit that we experience as black and brown individuals pre-law enforcement. So so let, let me exactly. ask now, it's terrific what you've shared here. Dr. Prado-Hodge, did you pick up in your interviews any of what Dr. Torrey just shared? Absolutely, absolutely. So oftentimes I found that officers were resistant to speaking out against racialized police violence or racialized uh, policing practices simply because they knew that there were consequences for violating that blue social norm, whether that be not being backed up when they're in danger, whether that be assigned to an undesirable duty or given a, a really crappy police car, whatever the case may be, like they, they I definitely, um, Dr. Turi's sentiments definitely were reverberated in my own research with Black police officers, for sure. Did you hear anything different from those who had rose through the ranks? Uh, no, nothing different. Oh, okay, yeah. All right, so when we think when we think of that, do you, do either of you as sociologists, I guess as a psychologist, I keep thinking about moral injury because to see, to see, even to have observed the situation that Dr. Torre described with this undercover cop killing um, Kevin Gaines, to, to know that happened, to watch it happen, but even to know that it happened later really goes against one's moral code. So is the, you know, we see, we talk about it with um, medicine, we talk about it with um, military, when you see something happen, be outside of your moral code, and you shut your mouth, because you have no choice, you then come back home from Iraq, and you can't get it out of your head. So I, I kept wondering about that every time I read any of the examples, and this example in particular, is really poignant. So tell us, one of the other things you asked, or let me just say this, was there any question or topic you raised, um, Dr. Prado-Hodge, that surprised you or shocked you in terms of the responses? I think there were quite a few things that I asked that, you know, I was definitely surprised at the answer, especially coming from Black um, people. Um, I think one of one of the remarkable things and one of the most surprising things about the interviews um, when we talk about moral compasses. So like if I asked you, Suzanne, what's the worst part about your job? You might say, oh, like, you know, uh, the long hours or something of the sort. Pretty much all of the officers um, involved in my study, they broke down crying. Mm. Um, recalling a really terrible event or a really terrible crime scene that, you know, they had to attend to, right? So when you talk about this PTSD, you mm. have to think about how officers' mental health, um, in addition to, you know, the racialized uh, violence that happens, um, the emotional violence, as well as the physical violence that might happen within policing, being Black, you know, we have to think about these things and how they're actually impacting Black police officers' mental well-being, as well as other officers' well-being. Yes, yes. Well, it goes across the board, the amount of PTSD and job um, pressure that leads to all kinds of family marital problems is enormous in law enforcement. But as you say it, if you are torn because a horrific event happened in a 
marginalized community, it's probably even more difficult. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I, I never discount the fact that policing is a very difficult job. You know, they see some of some really terrible things. Um, but it, it, those are definitely very surprising things that, you know, these things still affect them, you know, like it could been 20 years ago. And so then how does that play out in their interactions with people? If they're still holding in this aggression um, or this sadness, how does that play out in their day-to-day interactions with people? And well, one of the things we know with PTSD is with men in particular, dysregulation and aggression are often the cover of depression and despair. So it becomes an extremely difficult thing to pick up on and or respond to. Now, being given what you just said, and I, I want both of your opinions on this one, but one of the interesting findings that you had is when they were asked, which do you align with most, Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter, or All Lives Matter, correct me, Was the major- were the majority saying All Lives Matter? Yes, all lives matter. Um, The complete identification with Blue Lives Matter was probably the least common finding, and though some officers did like identify with it, but it was it was in combination with some other thing, right? Um, So I had a one very interesting officer who was very much pro Black Lives Matter and very much pro Blue Lives Matter, even though he disentangle the nuances as well as the complications that both of these arguments had. Um, But the majority of the officers in my study drew on this all lives matter matter rhetoric as well, like this colorblindness, right? Like colorblind. Uh, And no, so many of them had experienced racism at the hands of their counterparts, their officer counterparts or within a wider world, you know? Mm. So. Absolutely. You know, I, I would simply add that um, I, I'm not shocked that officers, particularly black and brown officers, would disidentify with Black Lives Matter. Um, when you ask about more injury, you know, this idea of sort of being exposed to psychological, behavioral and social stressors. Um, again, you have to under, the context here is race. Uh, and to be black in this society is to be considered perpetually unscrupulous. To be white is to be considered scrupulous. So mm. there is this sort of discrepancy that this, you know, which which takes on the Boisean idea of double consciousness really well. There is this warring half between the black officer, right? Do I identify with blue lives or white lives matter or et cetera, all lives matter, or do I identify with black lives matter? And it's this constant tension. I think what's most amazing is the cognitive dissonance that results from that. So on the one hand, you have officers who will align themselves with um, this rejoinder, if you will, that blue lives matter or that all lives matter over that of um, white lives. I'm always shocked when officers who come from the same community that I come from, who both sees urban crime, but also sees police brutality and who would just rail against um, people from the, that look like he or she in the same community. That's one possible outcome. The other outcome is when black officers engage in acts of violence that that in some ways is peerless to their white counterparts. Uh, black people talk about all the time, hey, you know, watch out for the police, this or this. But then, you know, there's that quiet conversation that often happens. Watch out for this black or brown officer because, you know, they're doing too much or they're going to do too much. 
right? In other words, this idea that black and brown officers as a means to prove themselves to the profession, they go ham, they go harder, mm. they hurt us even more. Mm. And so when I see officers engaged in this type of violence, like the Memphis Five, although it was, mm. you know, approximately about 13 of them, um, but the Memphis Five, I- I'm not shocked because they have to prove themselves to be not racially transcendent, but to be above and beyond blackness. I'm so happy that you're explaining this, Dr. Ture, because I can't tell you how many people ask me what I thought of the fact that the assailants were black undercover officers. But what you're saying makes so much sense in terms of the need to overprove. Yeah, yeah, to overprove. Yes, yeah, it's it's painful. The other thing that, that you remind me of is what you don't realize if you're white is I raised sons, big, tall sons. And a friend of mine, Hawthorne, who runs the Bellevue program, a wonderful program, he has a teenage son now, my sons are older. And he said, you know, there's a hum of fear every time my son walks home at night in a hoodie. I tell him, don't put the hood up, do not run, walk slow, come home. And I thought I never had to worry about that. Why does he have that worry that he has to carry? And it's just what you're saying. You don't even realize it until you're put in the shoes of someone who always has that hum. Sure. But, the, you know, and this this sort of uh, prescriptive talk that African-American children often receive, mm-hmm. uh, the Memphis situation demonstrates that that no longer holds sway. Right. Because some of the perpetrators or conveyors of uh, purveyors of violence are insiders. But I think getting back to Kayla's um, really important work here, um, Kayla mentioned that, you know, with, with a few of these um, interviewees, she spent hours upon hours with them. And that's just it. If you want to get around the cognitive dissonance, if you want to get around the performance part, you have to do exactly what Kayla's doing in her research. You got to spend time with them and you got to get these black officers to trust you because, again, as provisional professionals, they are being tested not simply by their white counterparts, but they see themselves or imagine themselves being tested by all. Right. So they prove their authenticity authenticity by performing for you. It is only through time that you can get behind the mask. And, right. and, and again, this is what Kayla does and demonstrates in her work. Kayla, we're going to have to take a break. And when we come back, um, Kayla, I do want you to speak about the double consciousness and and more of your findings. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're here with Dr. Prado Hodge, a sociologist and professor. Her new research study, Behind the Badge and the Veil, the Black Police Offices in an Era of Black Lives Matter. She's joined by Dr. Torre, a former Black policeman himself, and now today a fellow at Yale and one of the nation's leading experts on policing. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. It is time to change the negative narrative of divorce. Families are hungry for a different option. Listen to The Good Divorce Show with Karen McNinney. 
You will discover how to function as one family living in two homes. There are high-functioning, stable, and happy divorced families living in your neighborhood. What's their secret sauce? What did their journey look like? Do they have regrets or recommendations? Let's find out. It's never too late to have a good divorce. The Good Divorce Show, Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do you ever have an off day? Or is your life positive and uplifting? Making Life Brighter is a forum for positive, inspired, and contemplative thought, showcasing experts in their fields, including authors, musicians, and artists. Your host, Winifred Adams, will bring to life topics to stimulate and make your life brighter. We want to hear from you. Be sure to tune in Thursdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. As humans, we suffer when we believe we are not good enough. We are taught we must be better, look better, try harder, and achieve more. We cope with the stress and disappointment of life in ways that make us feel worse and keep us stuck in a cycle of unworthiness. We don't have to live this way. You don't have to live this way. Kirsten and her guests will share how self-acceptance and unconditional self-love can help you break this cycle and find freedom. Listen to Giraffe Tango Octopus, Freedom for Humans, with Kirsten Johansson, Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back, folks. We are talking about Black police offices in an era of Black Lives Matter. We're here with Dr. Prado Hodge. She's a sociologist who did a unbelievable study for two years, meeting with and talking with Black officers. And Dr. Kalfani Torre, um, a leading expert on policing, was during his life a Black police officer, now a fellow at Yale. So Dr. Prado Hodge, in terms of the hours you spent with these officers, what other information struck you as very important that you'd like to share? Sure. I think some of the most important information is that um, kind of, you know, what we touched on earlier is that racial diversity in and of itself um, will not end police violence, right? So we have these racial diversity initiatives um, you know, where we say, okay, let's throw money at the problem. And let's say, let's just hire some more black police officers. I think the reality of it is, is that police culture is very stagnant and it's not changing in the way that, uh, it needs to change in order to really integrate the profession, but also welcoming and, and accepting in a way that will change the dynamics that the police have with the public. Um, I think that was one of the most interesting things that I found, you know, black police officers can be just as violent um, as white police officers or like Dr. Therese said, you know, they can then overcompensate and become much worse. So like Dr. Therese said as well, like, you know, uh, this overcompensation, I oftentimes hear 
um, black people say, oh, well, I got to deal with the black person or a black cop. Um, and that to them is a much worse experience. And one of my participants actually spoke to this where he said, you know, you as a black person represent me as a black police officer. And so when we're in this space and you might be acting a certain way, you're embarrassing me. And I take that personal, which is why uh. it's so much harder um, or I might seem more aggressive uh, than a white cop in that situation because the white cop doesn't have to do anything in that situation where, you know, whereas the black cop is expected to actually um, perform um, in, in a way that is very aggressive, very violent, and very consistent with blue police cultural norms and values. I think, you know, when we talk about race and policing, we really, ha- and, and racialized police violence, we really have to interrogate um, blue police culture because it's not just um, the individuals that are going to change policing. And I feel like those individuals who uh, went into policing because they they wanted to change policing in any way, shape, or form. Those officers typically don't last in the profession, right? Because of that moral compass of not being able to perform these racially marginalizing and abusive behaviors um, to the larger public or to people that actually look like them. So I mm. think that that's probably one of the most like you know poignant findings and one of the things that has to be really, really, like we really need to sit with it. You know, we cannot provide band-aid solutions, especially when we think about um, the hiring practice in, practices in policing, right? Because even those hiring practices are very racially biased. You know, if you have someone who is much older, who is now recruiting officers, who serves as, you know, the person who views applications and stuff, how then are they perpetuating this blue police culture if they're only allowing people in who think in very similar ways or who behave in very similar ways or who have very similar ideologies as them and don't veer away from that blue cultural norm? So if the organization, and this probably takes place in medicine and education at schools, if we continue to see the manifestation of systemic racism in an organization, as you say, no Band-Aid and no hiring is necessarily going to change that. The thing I mentioned on the break is one would hope that there was a way to not um, demoralize young men who want to go into law enforcement and happen to be black. Right now, it's a courageous thing to do. And or it says, you say, Dr. Torre, it's an overcompensation. I can do it. I can do it better than them. I can do it. I'll be tougher. But I can I can hear from both of you what I don't think people understand enough, that there's a, a, a real a real dilemma here in terms of how can I be a black policeman who feels like I make a difference in a community that's suffering without perpetuating racial violence. Well, just to, just to be clear here, um, this idea about um, compensatory practice or compensating, I'm saying that as a black or brown person in this society where to be black or brown is to be at the bottom of the social order, joining the law enforcement is a way to recover some yeah. of that lost and stolen credibility. But the other part here is, is that um, to ask black and brown people to continue to be law enforcement officers. And I'm going to tell you, I recruit every chance I get because I think we should be in the profession. But Good. to ask us to re- to join this profession without grappling with the structural and, and racial uh, inequities in society is only going to 
um, continue what law enforcement already does. Look, mm-hmm. if the problems we can't see or hear or or detect empirically, we certainly know that there are individual actors and we blame the actors. Much of the crime that um, permeates at least the inner city communities is not a result of some innate condition or predis- predisposition to be, commit crime. It is a result of structural and racial inequality. And so we have to fix that. I tell you, you know, James Baldwin says in Fire Next Time, he says, you know, we have to ask this fundamental question. Do we really want to integrate a burning house? And law enforcement, in as much as I want to recruit people to the profession, law enforcement is that burning house that keeps throwing the fire extinguishers out of the window, turning away the fire truck, closing the fire hydrants. Um, And it is a burning house. And so is this the solution? I think once you fix structural inequality, you'll find that many African-Americans won't even want to go into law enforcement. They'll share the same aspirations as their counterparts of doing other things like medicine and engineering. But right now we're stuck in this situation, um, this liminal situation, where in fact we're faced with so much precarity, so much crime. It's conceivable, though, Dr. Torre, that... When we when we take away the um, let's say the racial uh, the racial violence associated the systemic racism not like it could magically be taken away, I wonder if some young men and women really would feel a calling to law enforcement it, for what it is and what it could be, you, you know, for, for for really as as a role as a vocation. But you're making the case, both of you, that when we look close, we have a very, very difficult and painful situation here. Yeah, yes. I, I definitely agree with that, Suzanne. Um, and I don't I want to I want to like really make this disclaimer is that the issue of racialized violence is not just with the police department. Right. right. I, I am that strong believer um, or that that strong teller that police act on behalf of the state. Right. So police violence is state sanctioned violence. You know, police don't put these laws in place. Politicians put these laws in place and police enforce them mm-hmm. necessarily just protected, um, you know, by no, you know, like larger entity. They're protected by uh, political leaders who then place these laws into um, our, our our society and our communities, whereas the police are, are, are of a protected class status, right? So I think that one of the biggest issues that I always have when having this conversation is people just blame police, right? But policing is a microcosm of the rest of society. It is a reflection of the rest of society. So until we grapple with as a society, systemic racism, violence, et cetera, et cetera. How can we then expect police policing to do the same, right? If policing is literally acting on behalf of the state, right? Mm-hmm. So if that's uh, something. Excellent. Well, very well said. You know, we're we're almost out of time. I I want to ask each of you in a brief comment to share a take-home message with our audience. This has been an incredibly moving and powerful show. Um uh, Dr. Torre. What's your take-home message to our listeners today? Well, you know, I, I think we, I want to get it right. I want to improve policing um, and I want to make community, all communities safe. And I think it begins with um, society forcing police departments to let us in, even if it means just to have a simple conversation, um, that, that we have to begin to build bridges 
first by talking about what the problems are, but doing it in such an honor, honest way. And mm-hmm. I think that that's the takeaway. The takeaway is to encourage amongst our fellow citizens to begin to ga- engage in discussions of honesty or sh- discussions that are shaped by honesty. That mm-hmm. is with police officers, but also with other citizens around what are the real fundamental issues without society. Great. I don't mean to cut you off. And Dr. Fredo Hodge, what, what would you share with our audience? I think very much along the same line as Dr. Ture, um, in terms of, you know, recognizing and calling the issue out. Um, so, for example, I think about the January 6th, um, I don't know what you want to call it, the attempted coup on the U.S. Yeah. campus. And the the thing that has always stuck in my mind is that black police officer that was trying to man off white supremacists who could have really like killed him, right? Um, and I and I and and what we found later was that there were some police officers who um, participated in the attempted coup, right? And so I think that we have to really have those conversations and not just paint this particular officer as heroic. We have to really grapple with the fact that, okay, so sure, he may have been heroic, but the other side of that is, you know, some of his fellow brethren, um, some people from the Blue Brotherhood went against him in this way. Mm -hmm. I mean, so I think that Mm -hmm really have to think about, you know, lifting the veil and what this actually means and how it might shape um, and inform policing uh, in society overall. Okay. I want to thank both of you for what you do in your careers, for your intense devotion to this project. We need professionals like you for the research, for the public speaking. I, I feel honored that both of you joined me today. Thank you so much. Thank you. I want to thank my listeners. Remember, you can hear this and any prior show as a podcast by 6 p.m. tonight. This will be on my host site, my website, but it'll also be on all the podcast platforms, iPhone, iTunes, Stitcher, Apple, Amazon, Audible. Remember, mostly be safe, take care, and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, be well and be listening.